0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hey, good morning. Welcome, welcome. You're here live with Dr. Jeff Weber, here, your host for the next 30 minutes on Pet Life Radio. Ask the best with Dr. Jeff, and also on my Instagram live. Uh, We're here for you. We're here for your pets. So if you have any questions, anything you want to talk about, now is the time to let me know. Send it. We already have someone waiting in the waiting room here on the show on Pet Life Radio. Lily, I will get to you in a minute. And um, anyway, how to get a hold of me? Well, you can do what Lily did. You go on to PetLifeRadio.com, click on Shows, scroll to Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff, and you'll see a Zoom link left there for you. Go ahead and just hit the link and you will be welcomed into the show. You can also, good old-fashioned way, still can be done, believe it or not, toll-free, 877-385-8882. Once again, 877-385-8882. Give a call, and we will be happy. And of course, for those of you on IG Live, oh, Shorty's there. Hello, hello. This guy, by the way, is phenomenal. And man, what he does with those pit bulls. Love it. So anyway, just go ahead and join me here and I will answer your questions and we can talk about anything you want to talk about. So anyway, before we get started on some of the things I want to talk to you about, we already have a question coming in from Instagram about managing diabetes in cats. So educating owners. So first of all, with diabetes in cats, it's typically what we call type 2 diabetes, which is often the non-insulin dependent. However, many of these are going to need some insulin as well. Uh, you need to talk to a veterinarian. There are a number of really good feline insulins available. So PCI, Vetsulin can be used in cats. Even good old Humulin can be used in cats. The problem is finding the right insulin. That, there's no insulin that works in animals very well for 24 hours like they do in people. It's typically at least twice a day. It's learning how to give a shot. There are some easy ways now to get some devices that you can actually measure your pet's blood sugar at home By just doing a little ear snip with just a little device, all you need is one teeny, teeny drop of blood. And that is very easy, very well, easy to do. And then you can at least monitor the values. It's important when you're dealing with cats. When we treat dogs for diabetes, we usually will give them a shot in the morning, their their morning shot, and then feed them. And they give the evening shot, then feed them. Well, not so fast with cats because they are so unpredictable. So usually with them, we let them eat first or at least while they're eating or at least starting to eat. Then we give them their shot because if you give them an injection of insulin and they don't eat, then we can get something called hypoglycemia. We drop the blood sugar too low. So it really is a dance. At the very beginning, it requires just a lot of patience, some involvement with your veterinarian, Uh, making sure you're giving the injections properly. Here's another thing. Just giving the shot itself is so funny because if you're not used to giving shots and you don't give a couple hundred shots a day like I do. So your tendency, when you put your finger on the plunger and you have this very, very small, thin syringe with a very fine needle, your tendency is you are, as you're putting the needle in, you've already pushed on the syringe. You you can't do that. So I, I advise people to treat the syringe like a dart. First, get it in with, don't even touch the plunger yet. First, get it in, make sure you're in, and then just, you know, go ahead and, and push the plunger. So at the beginning, it's more challenging because at the beginning, you're doing a lot of what we call titrating. We're trying to figure out what is the best dose, the best schedule for that particular cat. And also there are some oral anti-gluconeogenic agents that might help. And ultimately with cats, because they are type two, if they lose weight, usually it's obese cats, by the way, if they lose weight and they're doing well, you might be able to back off or discontinue the insulin altogether. Not so with dogs, dogs, regardless of when they get it, it's juvenile diabetes type one. And those are the ones that are going to be insulin dependent all the time. So even when a dog becomes diabetic at middle age or older, it's still type 1, they're going to probably need insulin forever. But cats have a chance. They so you're saying there's a chance. Yes, there is a chance that they can beat the insulin need, but they'll still probably need to be on some sort of oral agent or something to help dietary modification. There are some things that can be done. So, of course, you cannot do this by yourself. You need to speak with your veterinarian, but it can be done. And oh, thank you for all the help with pancreatitis. Well, thank you. I'm so glad it's working out. And and we talked this morning, so you'll see what we need to do more. But there's some tests. And again, you can always get a hold of me about that. Uh, Helping someone on AirVet and met them on AirVet. I love AirVet. Hope you guys love it too. My own clients, you'd think that they would know already. So their dog was spayed last week, did beautifully. And then it vomited late night, one night, and it's done this before. It's almost like a gastric reflux. And what happens is if they don't eat, and that's why I often recommend people whose dogs have a gastric, kind of like our heartburn, that they should feed a little late night snack. Anyway, two, three in the morning, this dog vomits, doesn't vomit food, it vomits its yellow bile. They went to emergency. They spent a fortune. And then they wanted to do more tests. I'm going to think, at least they had the sense to say, no, 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 we don't need more tests. We just had to stay. She was just tested before she, her surgery. But anyway, it blows my mind. So uh, we got to be uh, very, very cautious with some of these emergencies. Use AirVet. Listen to me here on Pet Life Radio. You can ask your questions for free and not run to emergency. All right. So let's talk about some things then. So, yet, as if we needed another one, the official 200th breed. Recognized by the AKC, the American Kennel Club, and you now for those of you who are the rescue people, you're saying, "Like, well, what do we need another more pure breed dogs?" So anyway, I get it, but it's called. It's it's really a cool looking dog, and it, by the way, it's not a new dog. No, 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 no. This is a very, very old dog, going back to the fourth or fifth century. But it's now recognized. It's becoming a little bit more popular. It's called a Bracco Italiano and uh it's a hunting dog it looks a lot like a pointer with ears like a bloodhound so it's perfect it's good for retrieving for hunting and for pointing so it's a great hunting dog dates back i love this fourth or fifth century in italy and it's really it's it's a good sized dog it's a big dog but it's as i said it's like a picture a pointer mixed with the bloodhound i mean that's kind of what it looks like but really really cute so uh congrats to this breed and uh okay next up oh this is a sad thing and that is because of the housing crunch what's going on now two bad things are happening first of all people that are moving because of they can't afford their homes now because of everything going up in price or their apartments or their whatever so so what they're doing is they're temporarily having to find some place that allows pets and they can't because there's a big crunch out there so what's happening is they are taking their pets back to the shelter or into the shelter for the first time. Those that have adopted pets and then now have to move are being relocated. Then they too now are bringing pets back into the shelter. So that's kind of sad. I mean, and you know, this was predicted just, just with, with, with COVID and when people were getting back into working back into the swing of things, then this was going to happen. That we were going to start seeing animals that were being relinquished back to the um, I've, I got a chat question. All right, a five-month-old mini poodle was diagnosed with transitional vertebral segment at the lumbar sacral junction. Not uncommon. Does that mean for development of life as a puppy is it okay? So, so this is a, a congenital anomaly. And well, first of all, the LS area lumbo problem is a common problem in many dogs, and there's often an instability. So, really, what it depends on is how on this five-month-old mini poodle how much symptoms are we seeing related to this problem? In other words, is there lameness? Is it pain? Unable to walk? It really depends how bad it is. Because if there is a pressure on the cord, and if an MRI was done to see really what the effect this is having on the spinal cord itself, then there are possibly things it can do. It can be fused, the disc or whatever could be removed surgically if there's being pressure put on the cord. So it really depends on is what effect This anomaly is having and how much of the diagnostics were done, or was it just done by x-ray at this time or consultation with a neurologist? So that would be your best bet talking to a neurosurgeon, a veterinary neurosurgeon or a neurologist who a lot of them do. So no MRI yet. She has pain when we touch. So just x-ray this time. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. So what I would recommend then is there are two ways you can do just treating right now. Either NSAIDs, non anti-inflammatories, if it's a little poodle, meloxicam would be my choice, or galopran, or get the MRI to see how extensive is the lesion, how much of a problem, and might there be a possible surgical correction. The only reason why I would push you to that in a surgical problem now is that the puppy's only five months old. Now, when this happens in adult dogs and it flares up, there are instances where it's worse, it gets better, responds to the steroids or to the non-steroids, rest, and then it gets better again. Well, in that case, there's no reason to consider surgery. But in a five-month-old puppy, if this is a, a genetic anomaly, developmental anomaly that might be able to be fixed through fusion, joint fusion, I would recommend taking it to the next step, getting the MRI, and having a consult with a veterinary neurologist or a veterinary neurosurgeon and to find out what might be done. And again, that's because you have a young dog, and you don't want to have this for the whole life if it's just pain. Now, if there were neurologic deficits, then that would, would add to the confusion and to some of the decision-making. But right now, if it's just a pain thing, and it's affecting her, and she's only five months old, I would take it to the next level. So my opinion, let me know. Okay, and there's another question coming in, and uh, everything just in time. Thanks a lot. Okay, good. Please. Uh, Lily, follow up with us. It's very important that we get this, and I will share this with everybody else, but I think it's, um, thanks for uh, asking. I love giving free advice, so now you get free advice. How cool is that? Okay, what are your thoughts on antibiotic therapy, i.e. metronidazole, for acute gastroenteritis in first-time offenders? So first of all, I love this question. I am not a drug junkie, so I did not like if it's a first-time offense, and I don't know anything about the dog, history of the dog, but it's very important. But if, if, It's a dog that has a tendency to munch on things and eat things or there's some neurosis going on in the household, some nerve, stress, anxiety, something that may have predisposed this case to a first time. My recommendation typically is to do it with diet. All right. And um, adding fiber to the diet, making sure that w- if there was a possibility that this dog was getting a hold of something to make sure that this dog is away, gets away from these things. And a lot of times these cute gastroenteritis is, and especially is the problem more vomiting or diarrhea. That's very important. If it's diarrhea, I'm a go-to. Let's try food modification. Let's try some fiber. Let's try some probiotics. Let's do something. Let's, you know, kiss roll. Back to the kiss roll. Keep it simple, stupid. I want to keep it simple. I don't want to push the drugs. Now, if we have something that's more refractory, and we are seeing it, it's maybe getting a little better, but not much better, or it's not helping at all, then yes, I would, well, first of all, get a diagnosis. Run a fecal exam. Let's make sure we know what we're doing. If it's only diarrhea is the problem. Um, If it persists, then I would try some flagell, metronidazole. If that doesn't work, then the next step could be, this is where you have that fork in the road, all right? Depending on how bad it is, is there a lot of blood? Is a rectal exam normal, but you really need to get some tissue sample to find out what we're dealing with? Then I would shoot for the scope. That's a referral and that's expensive. If the other things didn't work and you've tried Flagyl, which is the newer anti-colitis medication or sulfazalazine, azulfidine. nothing works. You have a dog that's got a, having a persistent problem now. Then you can either go to the steroids, which I don't know if I would do that. I would probably go with the scope again, depending on the age of the dog and depending on, on finances. If money is a real object and everything else about the dog is perfect, then you can try a course of cortisone. But I first go with the, my dietary modification and then depending on many other factors I can advise one way or the other. Okay. Next up is Ehrlichia contagious. The Ehrlichia itself, no. It's got to come from the tick. It's a tick bite. Now, is it contagious? If a dog is redilogy and, and a tick bites it, and then that tick goes to another dog, well, yeah. But from pet to pet, oh, no, it's a blood parasite. So it's in the bloodstream. It's not something that they can pass on through you know sputum or a nasal discharge to another dog, even poop. But it's got to be through a tick bite. Okay, next up. Oh, just in Virginia, if you're back east, rattlesnake warnings. Uh, there have been a number of uh, cases of rattlesnake. So again, That's uh, just, you know, FYI, stay safe. Oh, boy, boy, time flies when you're having a good time. We have to break for our advertisers. No wonder why Marcus gave you dirty looks. So anyway, all right, we'll be right back after these short messages. Do not go away. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. Okay, welcome back. We had a couple of good questions on IG Live on Instagram coming in. So I want to share that. First of all, is trazodone the only thing to help elderly dogs with dementia dealing with sundowner syndrome? So, and the answer is no. Trazodone is more of a, it's calming, all right? So there are other things you can do that will help that as well. But I'm a big fan of brain food. So first of all, antioxidants seem to help. And also there's no one solution to any of this. And also there's a medication that's used in people with Alzheimer's called selegiline or L-deprinil. It's also the, uh, one of the active ingredients in Anapril, which is a veterinary product. Anyway, that can be very effective. I would say it is because every dog is different, but there are some things you can do. And just just understanding that it does happen. And as long as they are still like eating and they're happy to see you and be with you and their relationship is good. And so what they slow sometimes, so what they get stuck in a corner and they can't move. Hopefully they're remembering that they have to be asked to go outside. If not, you might want to put some wee-wee pads down. Really it is. It's like with getting puppies all over again all these things you had to do when they were puppy when they get very very old it's the same thing kind of like elderly people needing diapers so it just it's one of those things that happens but you know as long as the dog still seems happy hang in there and and is eating try deprenil try antioxidants try coq10 glutathione, reductase, any antioxidants, a lot of food. There's actually a diet out there called BD, brain diet. And what makes it so brain diet-ish is the fact that it's got loaded with antioxidants. And anything an ophthalmologist can do for a 14-year-old who's losing her vision. Well, first of all, getting a diagnosis is really what the key is. They can get a diagnosis for you where you can find out what exactly is going on with the, yeah, with, why is their vision loss? Is it cataract? Is it severe lens problems? You know, nuclear sclerosis or lenticular sclerosis, they call it, where the lens capsule gets thick and hazy and loses its elasticity. So now it's harder for the light to get through. So that's a possible problem. And then is it a problem in the back of the eye, the retina? Is there some sort of retinal degeneration? Is there retinal detachment? Uh, There's so many factors. So what the ophthalmologist can help you do is at least come up with a diagnosis as to what the cause is. And then based on that, is where possibly treatments can be done. So I would highly recommend also if it's coming on suddenly like fairly rapidly then 100% you should see an ophthalmologist. If it's something that's been progressive over a long time and there is sclerosis which a veterinarian can see and there's no cataract which a veterinarian can see there's certain simple tests that we can do I mean I can do even in an office that would, would be I could do what's called an ocular fundic exam I can see the back of the eye I can evaluate the optic disc I can look at blood supply I can see if there's detachment a general practitioner should be able to do that and then of course you know being able to see the back of the eye kind of tells you that if you can't see the back of the eye the retina then chances are it's not a cataract because with cataract you can't get to the back of the eye so anyway these are some of the things that you can do and uh, i would highly recommend have your doc do some really good stuff too all right next up Ah, recommended for stiff joints and hind legs, but not quite ready for anti-inflammatory and pain meds, a nine-year-old pug slowing down, chondroitin, glucosamine, adequin, and laser therapy. (laughs) Did I answer your question? Yes, there are a lot of things you can do first, and I don't blame you try to shy away from the drugs right now, but yeah, laser therapy is really cool. If your vet doesn't do it, there are going to be a lot of rehab facilities that will do cold laser or therapeutic laser. It really is effective. I love it. We do it every day on animals. And the next thing, uh, glucosamine, chondroitin supplementation. There's also supplements that are really good. Adequine. Adequine injection is an injection that your vet has to give if you're really good that probably can teach you how to do it because you want to give it long term. But it it is the original Polysulfated glycosaminoglycans. It is the original supplement, if you will, though it's injectable, it's not oral, and it is very effective. I was listening to a a surgeon, a veterinary surgeon, orthopod at a trade show once. And you know, with all these oral products available and cold laser available, and he was saying, he says, for those of you who've been around for a long time, you might remember he had this, he would kind of had that accent, he was a Southerner. Remember those, that Adequan, that shot we used to give, remember that? Well, you might want to pull some out of your cabinet, wipe off the cobwebs, and start using it again, because he says it is one of the best things on the planet for this problem. So do it, Adequan, A-D-E-Q-U-A-N. Also very effective, and um, as I said, one other thing: it's not cheap. It's very natural, and I've had tremendous success with it. PRP, platelet-rich plasma. You need to find a vet that has the PRP machine, and it's it's very very expensive. We take the plasma from the dog. We draw off about thirty-five CCs of that. We can salvage four CCs of PRP, and that's all you need. All right, it goes through this machine. It spins it down. You dump off all the non-PRP stuff. Save those four mL. You pull it up on a syringe, but otherwise, it's really cool. PRP. I did it once. I had to do it on an elbow, had elbow dysplasia on an old Labrador. That sometimes you have to come back in a, two months or three months and do it a second shot. I never had to do a second shot. This dog did amazingly well, so I kind of like it, if you couldn't tell. In Oklahoma City, I you know, sometimes I like to be regional. Feline, panleukopenia. Every cat should be getting a vaccine for panleukopenia every three years, unless you want to test for it and tighter it, but it is potentially deadly. And what they say? Yeah, actually it's fatal in 90% of the cases. So uh, it's tough. So be careful if you're in a, a, that area, make sure your cats, especially if they're outdoor cats, even indoor cats, but outdoor cats are highly susceptible to it. If they are not vaccinated and vaccine is so easy, get a vaccine. Oh, it is known. This is not an argument against getting spay and neuter. A hundred percent. Yes. But we know that when cats or dogs lose this what we call sexual energy that if you don't make dietary modification after the spay and neuter after the testosterone or the estrogen is gone then they might gain weight and we do see a lot of obesity in these animals very important to make adjustments you just want to adjust their caloric intake or make it up by exercising them more but anyway just know that it is a potential issue and uh, one last thing for those of you I participated in this came out of Australia. It was an allergy summit. I was one of the dozen or so speakers. We're going to send you information online, either on Instagram or on our websites on the dog allergy summit. It's going to be going on from July 29th to August 3rd. I don't know what day or dates my seminars will be. I don't know if they're only playing them once or going to be repeating them, but we'll try to find out more information for you. But anyway, that's a uh, interesting if you, again, just want to learn more about allergies. Obviously, I spoke about the things that I am very active and passionate about, but there were many speakers, a lot of really good things you can learn about pet allergies. And let's face it, especially spring and summer, uh, one of the number one reasons that I'm seeing patients in my clinic is because of allergic skin disease. So it is really a common problem. All right, that's all we have time for today. Lily, thanks for joining me. Please stay in touch with me about that. I would recommend, because of her age, her young age, I would highly recommend an MRI and then a consult with a veterinary neurologist or a veterinary surgeon who does neurosurgery as well, because there may be some things that we can help her and have her lead a fairly normal life. So, uh, get back to me. If you want to ask me or talk to me personally, you can reach me at Dr. Jeff, drjeff at And for those of you also, drjeff at petliferadio.com. Or, of course, just reach me here on Instagram, and send me a, a message, and I will get back to you. So, I think that's it. We'll see you all here next week. Same bad time, same bad channel same here on instagram live and uh if you have any questions during the week as i said please send them to me they're really good ones i'm going to share them with the audiences both here on pet life radio and instagram so otherwise have a good week see you next week let's talk pets every week on demand only on petliferadio.com